The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the 316th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Robert Jackson Bennett, author of the new novel, Shorefall, the second installment of the Founders Trilogy. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Robert Jackson Bennett, author of the just-published novel, Shorefall, the second installment in the Founders Trilogy. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel, Shorefall, yet, how would you describe the novel and the Founders Trilogy? Yeah, I would say that they should probably read the first one first, which is a a boundary sign. Um, it's set in a world where, uh, there's an art called scribing, which is like magic that, uh, functions like coding. Uh, the way it works is that you write runes on an object, which act as instructions that you have to uh, make extremely clear and extremely, uh, 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 logical that inform that object, how it needs to, uh, 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 disobey a, a reality. Um, and if you get it wrong, then it could explode and uh, or hurt you or, or do all kinds of things. Um, this is extremely hard to do, which means that it takes a lot of school to do it, uh, which means that you have to be extremely uh, uh, like wealthy to practice it. So what's happened over time is that um, all of like the workshops and the uh, craft centers that used to do this have sort of uh, um, uh, uh, consolidated like into four large trade uh, 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 trading houses that control all of the scribing in the world and um, have pretty quickly become um, like uh, uh, like like the robber barons of a trade empire. Um, and so this is all uh, practice from the city of Tavon. And um, because uh, like Tavon has been split up like among these four trade houses, there's no city government. There's no 
um, like uh, a, a city police force. There's the four places that are walled off and owned by the trading houses. And then there's people who are just kind of out of luck. Uh, the uh, protagonist of the story is named uh, Sancia, who is a thief who's actually been scribed. And that's extremely hard to do. It's hard to scribe a, 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 like a living being. Uh, but she actually is a scribed person. Um, and uh, she has uh, some talents that make her extremely good at thieving. And she's been hired to steal um, an object that has just been shipped into the docks. And she doesn't, she uh, has taken the job aware that it could be from uh, other trading houses, but she really doesn't want it to be. Because usually if you deal with the trading houses, you wind up dead. Um, she uh, successfully steals the object, comes back to her uh, like apartment and finds out that it is a key that can talk like in your head uh, when you touch it, and that it is an extremely uh, uh, powerful scribed item, and things go downhill from there. Interesting. Well, do you remember the original idea that led you to write the Founders trilogy? Sure. I was. Um, I had um, a desire to write a story with a magic, uh, a a magic uh, 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 light system in it. Um, and I wasn't quite sure how that should work because there's lots of books out there that, uh, uh, people like because they like the magic it, um, because when a magic system works quite well, uh, people tend to have a lot of fun with it. It seems like something that they could, uh, uh, uh play around it like a sandbox game. Um, so I was driving around thinking about, uh, like magic and how it works. And I was actually kind of getting, uh, frustrated because for most magic it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but uh the the like way that i think about magic is how could someone find that this exists and find a way to like exploit it um and when you think about something like like harry potter the like idea is that you find a, a magical beast you kill it you take a piece of it, uh, and then you uh, uh, put it inside of a piece of wood. And then if you stand in the right way and hold that piece of wood the right way, and you say the right amount of light mumbo-jumbo, and if you think the right thoughts uh, sometimes, you can make the world change. And that, and like uh, the more that I thought about it, I was like, there is absolutely no way that a human being could find out how this works. And it's also not clear how someone like makes new spells, things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started thinking, I was like, well, what is magic really? And I decided that uh, magic was a series of instructions that are told to the world that can uh, convince the world to change. Um, and at first I thought of it as sort of a legal code where you could um, write a contract uh, uh, with reality that would uh, convince it to change. But, um, but the more that I thought about it, um, the, the more that I felt like code was a much more fun way to play with it. Since code is something that we all kind of know a little bit about. Um, and it's hard and it's like definite, like laws are kind of squishy. They change it, Like it feels like they change all the time. Right. But code is something that we get. So are you a coder yourself? 
Um, I think everybody these days is a coder a little <laughs> bit. I'm not a big coder my, um, myself, but I do a lot of stuff in Excel and uh, and in databases and things like that. And it like the way that I think about it is that is that you sort of have to nudge these like systems into finding the right places to look for things and then try and then make sure that they are looking like in the right place for the like instructions for then uh, 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 what to do with those things. So it is really all about trying to uh, design a reference point for all these things to happen. And that's a big part of scribing in the story too. Um, one of the things that they find pretty quickly is that if you if you want to convince a reality to do something really, really crazy, uh, it takes a lot of runes more than, than could uh, like ever fit on an object. Like if you want to convince like an arrow uh, to uh, that it's not flying uh, through the air, but is instead uh, uh, falling, so that it goes straight and that like it accelerates a a as it flies. Um, that's a huge amount of runes. Uh, so the thing you have to do is you have to create, much like in a database, um, sort of um, uh, like a bank of code that you can then uh, that can then be like activated uh, as a reference point just by putting like one rune on the arrow. So that like like one rune says to the arrow, "Look at this bank uh, that's far away. That's full of all. That's full of." Uh, the strings and strings of code that then say like what the arrow really should be doing. Uh, and so really what this was, was it was a magic a database. Uh, but the way that it works in the story is that it's almost like uh, like a nuclear uh, a reactor because these like places are storing piles and piles of arguments that convince uh, like reality to change. So if you hang out close to one of these places, like you get horrible headaches and like your nose starts bleeding and things feel thin and strange, it's not fun to be around them. And they're also hugely dangerous. If something goes wrong or um, they aren't like uh, maintained carefully, then the world close to these like banks of uh, runes, uh, like just go haywire and they can like wipe out uh, like reality like around them, which is very bad. So what, what are your earliest memories of reading science fiction and fantasy, and what are your earliest memories of going beyond reading to writing your own fantasy stories? Um, my earliest memories of reading science fiction and fantasy, probably uh, uh, Madeline Lingle back in the day. Um, that was a big one. I also recall reading. Uh, I think I mostly just read the things that my brother read. Like, um, I remember I was like six or so and he read, um, I think it was like Ender's Game. And I remember, uh, reading that one as well and being really surprised about the amount of, uh, nudity in that book. <laughs> um, uh, and then it wasn't until high school that I read uh, the Lord of the Rings, um, and I got super into that. Like I had all the maps and stuff like that. Right. But it wasn't until like high school or college that I started to think up stories that I wish that someone else would write, but they didn't seem to be writing them. So I felt like I had to do that for them. 
<laughs> and so what was that like, your first early efforts? Uh, they were terrible. Um, they were probably mildly sociopathic. Um, and, um, but they didn't really have the guts to actually be uh, uh, sociopathic. They wanted to have all of like the cool, um, like, like posing of being like, like super violent and, uh, like nihilistic, but I didn't actually want to do that stuff. Um, so it was probably very bad. Um, it wasn't until college that I completed my first novel. I believe if I recall it clocked in at 177,000 words. No, sorry. 750,000 words. Wow. Um, I recall doing like the editing for it and thinking each time that I read a, uh, a scene that didn't work that well, I was like, well, obviously this needs some more words to make it clearer. So each <laughs> chapter I think was like 30 to 50,000 words. It was absolutely insane because I really didn't know what a book looked like. Um, and it's like trying to make a, to make um, a pie out of clay. You like, it seems simple. It's just sort of a big cup thing. And you have to clay to sit down and do it. And it's not until you actually do it that it actually, that it turns into a giant ball of mud. Um, and it takes time to like work at a unit again to realize how your hands work with the clay, how the clay works like like with itself. These things take time to learn how to do. Um, and so you, I, I found that I had to write a lot of different types of books until I found the format of the structure that worked for me. And I still try and change that up quite a bit. Um, I know that there's a pretty striking uh, difference between uh, 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 The Divine Cities, which is my previous uh, series, and this one, um, both in how they uh, like, like how the worlds work and in how the stories function. And so can you talk about the process of getting from a uh, first novel that was 750,000 words to kind of the publication of your first novel? What, what was that process like? Um, let's see. So there was the first book, which was three quarters of a million words. I junked that one. Um, then after that, if I recall, I wrote a short comic novel because I was pretty good at writing things that were funny. I thought, um, like I would write things for my friends, like on the internet, and they thought that uh, 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 these were like really funny. And I thought that that would be my thing. I would be a comic writer. Um, but I also wanted to write like fantasy. So I wrote a short novel about Jack the Giant Killer, like still being alive today and still slaying giants. Um, but it was also a mystery novel and a comic novel. It was a, and it was kind of a mess. Um, but I could tell at points that the story uh, wanted to go a lot uh, darker. And that, and I couldn't let that happen. Um, I submitted that. I got a few like agents kind of interested in it. They wanted to read more of it. Like one of which is my current agent. She does not recall that uh, that book. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I, I, I don't remember that one at all. Which is a, probably a good sign of how bad it was. Um, but that one didn't work. Uh, so I wrote another short novel about 72, like, like 80,000 words that I think all vain young men write at some point in time about a young man trying to like, like discover himself, usually by drinking and partying and having sex. Um, and it was very much like an, uh, like an indie movie kind of a book. 
like the late like the uh, late nineties like indie movie scene. It felt <laughs> like that. Uh, that one did not get any responses, nor should have. Um, and it wasn't until like I um, had been thinking about the idea of trying to take like myths and fantasy and trying to uh, combine them with uh, something else. Because I recall that um, uh, Stephen King had said that he had been, uh, he'd been in college and had like wanted to write a fantasy novel, but he wasn't sure what it would look like. And, um, or like he wanted it to be different, but he didn't know how it wanted to feel. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And he, and one evening he took a, a mescaline and went to the movies and saw uh, the good and the bad and the ugly. And he was like, I want to write this. Like, this is the thing that I, that I need to do. And that was how he wrote uh, The Gunslinger, which became uh, the Dark Tower series, which I was a huge fan of up until book five. Um, and so, so I'm assuming you didn't like that. the ending? No, I don't love the ending. I mean, like, I don't know. It gets very self-involved. It's I think the other thing that works about that series in the first few books is how the world is not explained, how the rules aren't explained. And then he tries really hard to explain all the rules. Um, and there's some, that, and, and the most like interesting rules he leaves like unexplained. Right. Um, so it doesn't quite work in the end, is my opinion. But I had been uh, 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 thinking about that, and um, I saw this movie called uh, The Proposition. I don't know if you've seen that. I don't know. Um, it is extremely violent, set in like Australia. It's a cowboy movie that feels oddly uh, spiritual, I'll say. Um, and uh, I had read uh, a lot of uh, reviews of it, and uh, Roger Ebert had compared it to uh, Blood Meridian, which I had never read. So I went and I read that. And I had this theory that I should. And I think that this is also a very young man thing to do, to write a story like uh, uh, Cormac uh, McCarthy. So I wanted to write a story like uh, uh, Cormac uh, McCarthy, 
that was a fantasy. And so I chose uh, the Great Depression um, because I felt like that was that that was like an era where the rules were all suspended and things were in like mid upheaval. And so things were like like really messy, and that's a great place to stage a lot of stories that sh that would normally feel outlandish. Um, and so I wrote a story about a man trying to um, find uh, the vagrant who killed his daughter, uh, who he believes was um, like a hobo. But as he takes to the rails to chase him, he slowly like realizes that this that uh, this person might not actually be a person at all because uh, he finds more and more people who are trying to find this person. Um, and um, I had always thought of myself as, as, well, so I wrote that book. I shopped that book around. My agent sent me back an email saying that she wanted to read the whole thing right away. I, like I sent it to her. She said she really liked it. And things went on from there. Um, we shopped it around to a few different uh, publications, uh, like publishers, and one was super, uh, super interested. They were like, I just am concerned that this, that I want to make sure that this gets uh, the money that it deserves. And I was like, oh boy. Um, but then it went to, um, to I forget, to uh, the committee and it got shot down. So that didn't happen. Yeah. But then it got picked up um, by Orbit and they published it. That was uh, Mr. Shivers. Um and like looking back on it, it is a young man's novel. It is me trying to do an impression of uh, Cormac uh, McCarthy. I don't really write like that that much anymore. And like, and so more to the point, they um, they wanted to uh, publish it as horror. And this was in 2010. Um, it was actually 2009, like right after the crash. Um, and I was like, I don't really see myself as a horror writer. I write like fantasy like like this book has like magic in it and stuff like that and um they um but they're like no horror's gonna be a really big thing it's gonna come back and it's gonna be a huge thing um but it wasn't until about two years later that we realized that when folks talked about horror like being a huge thing what they really meant was zombies that was what was <laughs> gonna be a huge thing horror itself was not gonna be a huge thing it's still not a huge thing is my understanding um, so there was a big push in the early 2010s um, to make a lot of horror, and none of it really turned out that well. And I know plenty of authors who were part of that push who, who tried to, like, hell to get out. And I am one of those people. Um, so, yeah. And so then after that, I wrote um, three other books. They're also about, like, America at points in the like early 20th century that explored, you know, the roots of where our nation came from. And one was like a science uh, fiction, uh, a detective novel, one was a fantasy, and the other one was like a science fiction uh, fantasy. Um, none of them did especially good. Um, like American Elsewhere, I think, has done possibly the best. It's uh, survived the most. But it really wasn't until I published... A city of stairs, uh, and became sort of a fantasy writer that I started to actually get more fans and more like attention, and uh, and that was what I used to sort of build the support that went into uh, Foundry Side and Shorefall. So, with Foundry Side and Shorefall, which are, are as we've discussed, are the first two books in a trilogy, 
Um, mm-hmm. what, what was your planning and writing process for the trilogy before you sold it and before the first book was published? Did you plot and outline the entire trilogy before you started writing? No. Um, what I found, and my editor would probably agree with this, is that when I plot a story, what it's like is, it's like you're a teacher and you have a student who you haven't met yet and you don't know them. But you say, all right, here's what I'm going to teach him. Here's how, here's how I'm going to teach him. Here's the grades that I expect. They're going to hit these marks. And um, then they're going to like uh, get past like, like this course. And then they're going to go to this college, get uh, this degree, and then get this job. And then, of course, you meet the kid. And they have some very different ideas about how that all works. And trying to make them do this thing that you chose for them doesn't work well and they hate you. Um, so when I plot a story, I, I, I've learned that I need to be kind of loose with it because as you write it, you can sort of feel a tension build. It's like, uh, being in a meeting and you can feel someone not talking about something that should be talked about, but it's hard to say it out loud to be like, wait a minute. I feel like there's something unspoken here. This is clear. I'm not sure what we're doing here. Um, and, or you realize that you need to have someone else in the meeting. Um, and so usually I try and follow those like instincts, but those instincts don't really show up until I'm actually like, like writing those moments. And then I realize that like the book needs this thing. So I have to go back and add that in like earlier and actually this is so interesting maybe i should do this instead of this so the and uh, uh those instincts have usually served me pretty well so i really try not to plot that much anymore plotting for me is very binding and constricting and i don't like it that much so are you writing another novel now i'm trying to it's pretty <laughs> hard in quarantine yeah um i thought that staying at home would mean i would have more time to do this stuff but as it turns out, you need like one to two hours a day of like not being interrupted to get things done. And that doesn't happen with two children in a quarantine. Um, and usually by the time that, you know, that they're asleep, your wife and you just want to have like, like time together without children. You can just like be adults and not have to be like trying to get them all logged into this or that. Or possibly eat. That's something else that we do. <laughs> so it's um, it's it's been enlightening. Um, I will put it that way. So, so what advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels and potentially uh, pursuing publication? Uh, I think that probably the best advice is the stuff they've heard a lot, which is just to write, to make mistakes, to doubt yourself. Um, and, uh, I mean, like, it, like, it feels weird to doubt yourself. There's always a lot of doubt that always comes with, um, with the stages, uh, with like, uh, the stages of, uh, writing something. But the, the, the thing that I, that I usually try to get people to think about is if you've ever watched an action movie, there are some that feel really good where you, where uh, 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 for some reason uh, the action 
makes sense. And there's some action movies where the action does not feel like it makes sense, where there's a lot of stuff happening, but it's hard for you to grasp it or cling to it. And usually what I've found is that in these like action movies that, that lack that, that uh, feeling of sense, there hasn't been a thoughtfulness applied to the audience to uh, uh, position them like in the action in the space where things are happening so that they can feel how the characters like, like move through this space, feel the ideas that they have in this space with all the resources around them. And uh, uh, these ideas feel like intuitive. And they also grasp the stakes of what's happening in this space. Um, and, uh, and like one of them that I think is a good movie, but has this happen a lot is Inception where the action feels like a blur. It's not really a space that exists. It's an urban fog. And so there's a lot of stuff happening, but it's a little hard to grasp onto, you know, like where is this now? We're deeper in, but, but, but like now that we're like deeper in, it's larger too. And, um, I really try and get people to think about that because that applies to things uh, beyond action. If you want people to grasp the characters or to grasp the themes of your story or just to grasp the uh, scenes that you're trying to describe to them, you need to think about the handholds that like the audience needs to pull themselves through what you are giving them. Um, and that's harder to do than you think. Um, because you want to give them enough, but not too much. You don't want to spend a huge amount of time like trying to describe. They're on this hill. They're on, they are on this hill. There are trees here. Blah blah blah. And then it's not until like later that you realize that actually this scene doesn't matter whatsoever. All the like important stuff is somewhere else. Um, but trying to uh, like design your stories, and that's the word that I like to do to, uh, uh, to use, is I think very critical. Because to like design has a level of thoughtfulness to it. It is a, like an awareness that someone else is going to be in this thing that you've made, and you need to make it easy for them, but also enriching. That's interesting. So, so what books have you read recently, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend? Um, I'm reading. I, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction these days, lots of history, because history I'm finding is usually crazier than fiction. And it also has really good jumping off points for you to learn about how humans make weird little mistakes or have ideas um, that can help your worlds feel more rich, feel uh, fuller and feel uh, uh, more vibrant. Um, there's uh, the one I'm listening to right now is the Eric Larson book, The uh, Splendid in the Bile about Churchill. Mm -hmm. um, that one is the one that I'm listening to right now. The one that I listened to previous about uh, uh, the Opium War was like, uh, I believe it was called um, Imperial Twilight, I think is what that one was called. Um, that one is really great because I actually don't know a lot about China or how China. Um, how it got started on what they call the hundred years of, I believe, humiliation 
uh, from the 1860s to the uh, 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 the 1960s, where just the whole world just beat them all up, right? For horrible reasons. Uh, but uh, the Opium War um, and the decline of their empire is really interesting because of the sheer breadth of corruption that they went through, and trying to understand like how every level of governance was completely corrupt and like ordinary people couldn't do anything and the emperor couldn't do anything because it's everywhere. Um, and how that, and how that made them incredibly weak and, um, very, uh, vulnerable to outsiders. Uh, that's something that I feel like has dire, uh, warnings for us today. Uh, because once that trend starts, it's very hard to stop it. True. <laughs> Where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Robert J. Bennett. I also have a website that I, I guess I update. I don't really uh, uh, remember. Uh, at robertjacksonbennett.com. Uh, but yeah, that's me. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Robert Jackson Bennett, author of the just published novel Shorefall, the second installment in the Founders Trilogy. Go, go buy both of the, the the two books in the trilogy that are released now. And Robert, thanks for doing this interview. Sure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Great. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.